for coming to this session of Nursing Grand Rounds. It's, um, it's an important one. Uh, it is entitled Stigma as Discrimination. And our learning outcome for today's presentation is as follows. At the end of this learning activity, you should be able to recognize stigma toward people who use drugs as discriminatory and integrate harm reduction into clinical care to combat the stigma. I would like to welcome anyone who is viewing this session online, and the program is being recorded. If you are watching this presentation live and have a question, Judy Langhans will be monitoring her email. You can email her the question, and she will relay it to our speaker. Her email is judith.m, as in May, dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. You must attend at least 80% of the program to receive credit, and at the end of the presentation, uh, you will earn one contact hour. We want you to know that neither our speaker nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or a relationship with a commercial entity, uh, and no one refused to disclose. New Hampshire still has one of the highest overdose rates in the country and has focused efforts on increasing critically needed treatment resources. Although we often discuss stigma as something to be aware of, recognition of stigma as discrimination toward people who use drugs more appropriately highlights the harm done. Integration of harm reduction strategies is seen as one way to address our discriminatory practices. Our speaker will discuss integration of harm reduction strategies into clinical care as a way to more effectively engage individuals. And our speaker for this session of Nursing Grand Rounds is Dr. Carrie Nolte, an assistant professor of nursing at the University of New Hampshire. She also serves as chair of the New Hampshire Harm Reduction Coalition, of which she is a founder? Is that? Yeah, I thought so, okay. Um, Dr. Nolte received her BS in nursing from Northeastern University, her master's in nursing from UNH, and her PhD in nursing from Northeastern. She is a family nurse practitioner. Her program focuses on communication and reducing the harms associated with drugs. She's concerned with opiate-related harms, including overdose and infection prevention. Her current work addresses HIV and hepatitis C prevention, overdose exposure in childhood, and healthcare provider screening for parental substance use. Her current professional practice includes serving as an FNP at a federally qualified health center and a syringe service program. She serves as the opioid and prescribing policy lead for the New Hampshire Nurse Practitioner Association, and she also represents that group on the Governor's Commission on Alcohol and Drug Abuse Healthcare Task Force and the New Hampshire NACAN Study Commission. So she's well prepared to share her information with us. I think we're going to learn quite a bit in the next hour. So please join me in welcoming her to the podium. Well, thank you so much. Um, can you hear me okay? Great. Um, always hearing my bio out loud, I feel like an imposter, but I have done all those things. Just, um, uh, really what my interest is, is in connecting with individuals. Um, and that's really the focus that I've had and where I've really um, come to present on harm reduction strategies. So how I got here was really in my clinical experience at Northeastern as an undergraduate, I worked in needle exchange. And so 
um, which many of us in, in nursing education would say, like, that's not a place for students. It's very dangerous. It's, but it's one of the safest places that students can be. They're meeting people where they're at. It is, um, it is nursing at its best and really the, the basics of nursing, connecting with people. And so um, when legislation for um, allowing syringe services or needle exchange programs um, came to be discussed in New Hampshire um, more seriously, and a lot of that was pushed by the opioid epidemic that we're um, still facing, um, I was really involved in advocacy. And within that, we then formed a nonprofit um, the Harm Reduction Coalition, in order to help support and bring um, together all of those professionals interested in harm reduction. Um, and so, as a healthcare provider and as a, a former ICU nurse, um, one of the things that I realized is we, you know, often nurses have kind of discriminatory conversations with people who use drugs and specifically people who inject drugs because they don't know any other way. Um, they don't know what they should talk about. In meeting people where they're at, they're not sure what to say or how to do it. And so the easiest thing is to focus on black and white rules and to really connect with people on, you can't do that, you need to leave, you know, you need to be out of this facility, you need to have a sitter, you need to, in, in putting all these rules, but so much of that, um, which I think of as discriminatory practices, is really lack of comfort on how to address drug use behavior and specifically injecting behavior. Um, so within this, I'm going to talk about um, first kind of the experience or what I've gathered from a few individuals of um, what their experience has been being treated in New Hampshire hospitals um, for, um, for substance use related or injecting related infections and then talk about some of those strategies and think together about how we could incorporate that. Um, I have no disclosures, but if any big sponsors want to sponsor harm reduction work or certain <laughs> services, please send them my way. I would happy, be happy to add disclosures on behalf of people um, So the first, um, to kind of frame where we're at, in harm reduction, it's really important that we highlight the voices of people who use drugs what their experiences are, and I'm not a person who uses drugs, and so um, I, I um, want to bring in a few kind of quotes, narratives from some of the work I've done. This is a qualitative study. It's not yet published, um, but we recruited uh, 20 individuals who were hospitalized for endocarditis, cellulitis, infections related to injecting in, across four community hospitals and then did semi-structured interviews with them. In some of these, they refer to, so Dartmouth was not one of our sites that we were collecting data at, but in, in, in some of our interviews, because many referrals occur to Dartmouth from area community hospitals, um, often people were referring to Dartmouth or other hospitals across the state as well. So some of these are long, but it's really important for me to highlight kind of the narrative, so I'm going to read this to you. People reported seeing inconsistent approaches. For example, there's no consistency, just luck of the draw. You're in the, ho you're in the hospital a month. The doctor that manages your care while you're here changes every three or four days. So you get a doctor, and the doctor will be like, oh, how's your pain? Do we need to increase it? You know, are they managing your pain well? And then literally three days later, another doctor will come in and be like, oh, we need to start weaning you off this pain medication. We need to start taking you off of this. 
there's no need for you to be in all this pain. And you can just tell because it's not because they don't know I'm in pain, because they know the deal. They know what a septic joint feels like. All these doctors are trained. They know a septic joint is a painful thing. It's about whether they think you should, whether you should get an opioid or not. So how many people can identify with this, with hospitals change, cover change, that for people hospitalized, specifically people who use drugs, their pain medications are changed all the time? Or depending on the provider, okay? The other thing that we saw that isn't in this quote is really about suboxone initiation. So we know that um, the, one of the greatest strategies to reduce opioid overdose deaths is engaging people on medication-assisted treatment. But similarly, they would have a hospitalist covering for three days that started them on it. They were doing great. And, and people become, individuals who are hospitalized then become victims to whatever the whatever the wind blows in with, with whatever attending is on duty, and therefore their treatment plan is crazy-making. That we haven't come to a point where we would accept that for any other condition. So we wouldn't let infectious, we wouldn't have infectious disease change all the antibiotics every three days, and with different perspectives, we know that there's harm in that. There's also harm in changing um, their treatment protocols around pain. Clients that we talked to described having to fight for their dignity. Um, in this quote, the doctor that I had when, he, when she saw the wound, she was scared. Called another doctor in. She tried to convince me to be admitted to the hospital, and I didn't want to. And we had the conversation where I said, I'm an IV drug user. I don't want to be treated the way you treat IV drug users, and I want to trust that I'm going to be treated fairly. I don't trust that I'm going to be treated like a human being which upset her more than it upset me. So she went off, and I guess she got in touch with the other doctor. They came back with a whole game plan. This is a very powerful person that was able to advocate for themselves, and all they were looking for was a discussion of care. So very often what we hear in our, what we've heard in our interviews is that people feel that um, providers come in and they say, well, this is what you need to do. You need to be admitted for six weeks. You need to be on this, you need to be blah, 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 and they give them no choice. And yet, in all of the rest of healthcare, we're constantly working on informed consent, discussing risks and benefits, and it's, it's the same conversation, but immediately if we're forcing care or telling people, you know, you're, if you leave, you're going to die and you need to be here, we're losing them. They're no longer engaged in their care. And then somehow we're shocked when they sign out AMA two days later or three days later, um, but they were never brought into the care to begin with. Unfortunately, we heard a lot of, we heard some great compassion that people received, um, and, but it was the exception. So people could point to one person that was compassionate, and that was in about 25% of our sample. But the things that they pointed to or the qualities that they described were basic nursing care. Um, and yet they didn't receive that from 99% of their care providers. There was, there's been a couple of nurses that are nice. A lot of the time it's not right. I know it's not right, but there's been a couple of good nurses. There was one good nurse at a hospital that I really liked. She was cool. If I ever needed anything, she would come in and talk to me. She started tearing up over this. She just knew how to make you feel comfortable. She knew how to talk to somebody, and she didn't make me feel like a drug addict. Like, literally, I just I would get so anxious and she would just come in and sit and talk to me for, like, 30 minutes. And it helped so much. It helped more than the pain medicine 
You know what I mean? Just having someone there to talk to you when you're like two hours away from home and you don't have anything. People here, they just think they know everything and they assume, they always assume the worst. Like they didn't even ask if I had used anything. They just assumed from a fever. Like I just had a blood infection. I have holes in my heart. A fever is not F uncommon. Now I can't even, I can't, oh, I didn't lock that one up. <laughs> I can't. I can't even piss without someone watching me. And I wasn't even using before I came here. I was using for like a month and I regret it. I was doing good again. So this person, and this came up in multiple interviews, that, it, that, that seeking a pain medication was actually reduced just by someone sitting there, which we know in every other you know, studies, post-surgical pain, that having support and connection is really important. But I think why many nurses Healthcare providers don't engage, don't take the time to sit down and ask someone their story if they use drugs, is because they're uncomfortable having that conversation. Because they think that they need expertise about, more expertise about drug use to have that conversation. When really they just need to like cut that out and just be a human and connect. And so in this scenario, when this person was interviewed, she had a 24-7 sitter that had been in place for about 24 hours. And that sitter was enacted after, um, after she had spiked a fever the night before. She was out of it. She had, was hospitalized for endocarditis. Um, the nurse came in, was like, oh, she's minimally responsive. Immediately assumed that she had used drugs and that that was why she was unresponsive or minimally responsive. Didn't check her temperature. Her temperature was 103.9. Finally, after they had security search the room and do this, um, they gave her Narcan. It didn't really have an effect. They still assumed that she used drugs. They still had a sitter. They finally treated her fever, called the, called the um, attending, etc. But then the sitter was just in place. So there was, from, and granted, from my perspective, there was no evidence that this person had used drugs. But suddenly she was in jail. We put her in the hospital. She came in um, because she was ill, and we put her in jail. Um, she was in her 20s, now couldn't pee without someone watching her, and yet we go to the lowest common denominator. So if a nurse, if one nurse says, I think this person used, we all are like, okay, they need a sitter. One person's suspicion is like the jury and judge for the rest of their admission. And so we never, once we add interventions, we never take them back. We never step them back. So the nurse that was on that day had said, like, oh, I really don't think she used, but, like, I just can't go against another nurse. Um, but there's so much fear in just advocating for that patient. And what happened eventually, I found out, was that this patient signed out AMA the next day. They're out, back out in the community. As far as I know, you know, she got back into her treatment program, but she never got that infection treated. She never finished her course of treatment. So you know what's going to happen. She's going to come back. They're going to look in the chart. They're going to see this use in the hospital. They're going to have a sitter. It's, it's going to be just a revolving door of the same thing. And so what I think was hugely missing from all of the interviews is I did have some participants who had used in the hospital, and I asked them specifically as I went along and never heard it from them, you know, if, or a team did, but um, 
that after their use in a facility, not once did anyone ask them, what led you to using? Like, what happened that, you know, you felt like you needed to use? Instead, it was, you used in the hospital, get out of the hospital, or we can't have you here, or here's all these restrictions, you can't have visitors, so then you're missing your support. Nurses don't want to engage with that person because um, they're a drug user, they might be sneaking drugs in their room, etc. And so it's totally isolating. And so we have safety policies, but yet we also like forget that human side of what their care experience becomes. Um, and many of these, you know, maybe if all these accusations are true, but even if they are true, that person still deserves the best care and compassion and someone to work with them on those policies and kind of where to go from there. So where I talk about stigma is discrimination. Um, stigma is negative beliefs, feelings, attitudes towards people, um, the people who work with them, um, members of the group impacted by substance use. So we've talked about stigma. I'm sure you've all been to other trainings on stigma for, you know, five years since the opioid epidemic really hit hard in New Hampshire. But when we talk about stigma, it's like, oh, yeah, everyone has stigma, and we, can, we, we, we aren't pressed to do it. Um, we aren't pressed to do anything to take action. But really, 90% of the time we're talking about stigma, we're talking about actions. So we're talking about things that because of their negative beliefs or feelings that people are doing. So that they're not engaging with that person who uses drugs that's hospitalized, that they're instead spending, all the, spending that half an hour sitting next to you know, their patient who just had a hip replacement. Both people need care, but if, you're, if, if because of that stigma, you are providing unequal care, that's discrimination. And so there's a lot of harms that are associated with that. It can also affect you know, family and friends, those who care for them, and it's often fueled by the myths um, that people who use drugs are controlled by the drugs and are incapable of protecting their health and safety, incapable of making their own decisions, which are all of the things that I hopefully work to influence, change, modify. Um, but I think some of it comes from just not having the tools, not knowing if you're going to you know, talk to people about safer use what that would be, what that would cover. We don't talk about it in nursing school, or we didn't um, until very recently. So when we talk about harm reduction, it's, it's very familiar. So we all engage in risk behavior every day. Driving is probably our biggest risk behavior. And then we have policies, practices, different strategies to help mitigate that harm. So we have seatbelts, we have driving laws, et cetera. Um, riding bikes has risk. We wear helmets. And so bringing these same principles to drug use as a way of engaging people in self-efficacy. So if they can make small changes, so we don't lose 200 pounds in a week, we don't expect people to go from drug use daily to no drug use. That it's a step process of making small changes in your life in order to get to a place of better health and safety. So when we think of substance use, we often, uh, so in harm reduction, we think of this as a continuum. So from abstinence to chaotic drug use. So chaotic drug use is when, you know, often the stereotype, when people are, um, are losing relationships. They're 
um, getting in fights with their family. They're stealing. They're doing whatever they can to support their habit. That is a very, very small amount of people who use drugs, probably 1% to 3% based on estimates. So when we think about specifically people who inject drugs, you know, often those are occasional social regular or regular users, and they're not engaging in those behaviors. So if we assume that they're going to lie, cheat, and steal, and that if they inject drugs, that automatically that means that they're going to be sneaking in drugs to the hospital, then we've done them a disservice, and we don't have an adequate understanding of substance use. So we look in harm reduction just like you're not going to lose 200 pounds in a day, um, that there, it's a step process from abstinence to excess, and that we look at every step down as a decrease in risk and a positive change. But within that, no one jumps from excess use to abstinence in a day. There are a few exceptions, and often they get highlighted because that's pretty easy. It's black and white. You know, John just had a rock bottom moment, and he decided it was it, and he stopped using that day, and he's been sober for 10 years now. Highlighting that actually is a disservice to people who use drugs and are getting and seeking recovery. Because they think if they tried that, if they were then abstinent for one day and then failed or went back, that they didn't do what John did. And, that, and, and we create a stigma around what getting into recovery means. Well, maybe you weren't really ready. Well, talking about it more as a chronic health issue, that's great that you took that step down to abstinence. And it's normal because this is a chronic health issue that then you're going to take a few steps up. But did you go right to excess use, or did you go to moderate use, or did you go to occasional use? And that's awesome. So you've already decreased your risk. Yes, you're using and your goal is to be abstinent, but let's work on how we get there and engage people in that. So having a setback is not a failure. It's a natural part of any chronic illness and chronic disease management. So the principles of harm reduction come from the national and international harm reduction coalitions. There are practical strategies aimed at reducing the negative consequences associated with drug use. It's also a social justice movement that respects the rights of people who use drugs. Um, in other places, although we would love to engage more people who use drugs in the conversation in New Hampshire as on behalf of the New Hampshire Harm Reduction Coalition, <coughs> Um, in New York, there's a pretty powerful drug users union that is consulted and engaged in planning new initiatives and new interventions to address substance use. With all of the money that's come into New Hampshire, I think it's over $100 million now, um, in order to combat our opioid epidemic, I don't, I'm not aware of any meaningful engagement of people who are actively using drugs. So right there, that's discrimination. We talk to the people that are in recovery, we talk to people that have been successful, but we're not talking to the people who have been unsuccessful and who the treatment resources have not matched their needs. Harm reduction accepts that drug use is part of our world. It's been there since the beginning of time. It will continue to be there till the end of time. So we do not see a world in which there is no drug use or no mind-altering substance use. Um, we look to minimize harm rather than ignore or condemn it. We understand that drug use is complex and there's a continuum of behaviors and some ways of using drugs are safer than others. And it's also a non-judgmental approach to empower drug users to share info. So as a nurse, if I share a great tip on blood sugar management with a person with diabetes, 
they're not going to go out and spread that awesome information to 200 people with diabetes. It's not how the social network works. But if your messaging to a person who uses drugs can be helpful, effective, and reduce harm, it's going to spread like wildfire. So your impact is huge in having those conversations. So in meeting people where they're at, we have to think of what they're experiencing. So this is a morbid comic, but I have to show it in every presentation because I think it's a great depiction. So more evidence of a healthcare system in crisis. Good news, Phil, a hospital bed just opened up. Um, and unfortunately, Phil isn't able to fill that bed. So the reality and the number of hoops that a person who wants treat substance use treatment in the state has to currently jump through are enormous. So if we put it to another chronic disease that's related to um, individual behaviors. So if someone comes in with a, an extremis and a heart attack, they're having an MI, and that is associated with their high blood pressure, their high blood sugar, their high cholesterol, their obesity, all of the things that they have made some choices that contribute to those things. What we do for quality improvement measures is we talk about you know, the time to get them into the cath, how fast we need to have it, how extreme it needs to be to restore circulation, to prevent further harm. But we would never, if suddenly Dartmouth decided, when someone comes in with, a, with an MI, we're going to send them out and tell them that they need to lose five pounds in the next two weeks, they need to stop eating processed food, stop drinking, and then in two weeks they can get a calf and maybe get the stent that they need. So everyone would be in an uproar if we thought about doing that. But that's very similar to what we do in substance use care. So we give people a list of resources. It's up to them to call them. They have to show that they're, even though they're showing up that day in the ER saying, I'm an extremist and I need, to, I need support and I need to be hospitalized, they then call every day. They have to show that they're motivated to get into care or treatment by calling every day, seeing if they have a bed. Then if they do have a bed, they have to find providers to do a physical that day, to um, write prescriptions for them for a month, et cetera, et cetera. In that time, people die, and just like they would if it was a heart attack coming in and we sent them out. So in meeting people where they're at, we have to understand that the system right now is not set up to deal with emergencies and substance use, and, and that that's really hard. And we can say, you know, we're here to support you and just apologize for it. Like, I'm really sorry. I'm going to do everything I can to be your advocate. But I know that you've struggled. I knew you've come in for help before. And it's on us as the healthcare community that you haven't been able to do that. And I just, I'm sorry about that. So the need for harm reduction comes from disproportionate disease and fatality rates. Specifically, we think about hep C and HIV, but also, um, also endocarditis, cellulitis, all of the abscesses we're seeing. Um, it's meant to engage a vulnerable population that's not otherwise reached by traditional services and keep individuals engaged if they relapse, have a setback, or are not abstinent. I think a lot has changed in our state in the recovery community, but prior, many, parts of, many people who use drugs would be engaged with a Narcotics Anonymous group, let's say, but then when they had a setback, when they, when they were using, they had a couple days of use, Many times they'd be alienated from those groups. So suddenly people are like, oh, you're back to using again. I don't want you here. You can't come to meetings. You can't. So all of the social network that they've built around recovery was sort of pulled out from under them. And I think that's changed a lot. But harm reduction is meant to be there across the span of wherever someone is and what they need. 
we look at every interaction as an opportunity to engage, to give people a chance to change, and really just to experience unconditional support. Um, client goals are more likely to be achieved. Um, and untimely, abstinent, untimely pushes for abstinence are lower engagement. So very often, people hear, and in our interviews we hear, things that I think nurses think are helpful to say. Um, for example, well, I, if you don't stop using, I'm never going to see you back here because you're going to have, you're going to overdose and die. Like, you need to go stop using right now. Like, you're killing yourself. People think that that negative motivation is helpful, and it may be for some people, but the vast majority of people we talk to in an interview, it is absolutely not. And what it does is disengages them from care. They scolded me. They were so mean to me. that I'm not going back there. I have this raging abscess, and I don't want to go back there because last time I was treated this way. So then what happens? We see them in three weeks later instead with endocarditis or sepsis or um, something else. So the harm that comes from stigma and discrimination is, is, is true like infectious disease overdose harm um, that often translates to death. We recognize so in support readiness to change, um, whether that is safe reducing infection, safer injecting practices, or getting into recovery. And I think that these things are things that should be implemented across our nursing practice, healthcare practice. And so some of these visuals are from resources that we put together as part of a harm reduction education project. Um, and so they're available on the NHHRC website. Um, and so we look to all of these approaches to be a resource to people who use drugs. So instead of, I know the right thing, you need to stop using, or I think you should stop using and I think you should go to NA, how does that sound? We're looking for people to be a resource. We're looking for nurses to engage and just like, hey, I went to the seminar about substance use and I realized I don't know anything. Can you tell me more about that when they have a person who uses drugs? Learn from the people who you are caring for. Don't think that you need to be an expert. They will teach you more than I could ever teach you. Um, by saying I can learn from you, I want to learn from you, that's all about educating and aligning. Um, we talk about this in every other realm of healthcare, and so we need to talk about it more with substance use. Some of the terminology that we support, this is also, anything that's in this color is a resource on our website. Um, the, the, um, we use person-centered language, so um, we should be advocating if we hear in a nursing, in a handout report, yeah, it's a 34-year-old heroin addict in for blah, 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 that we stop that. that we, that's actually stigmatizing. There's clear evidence that that actually biases care. So if I, talk, if I give that report to you, the way that you interact and the suspicion that you have around that patient, is it means less compassion, more aggression, right? And that, there's clear studies for that. So we use person with substance use disorder, person with opioid use disorder, person who injects drugs. And we also, even though relapse is a clinical term, we try to talk about it as a setback. If we're thinking about this as a chronic disease, yes, there's a clinical de definition of relapse, but it sounds very final. It sounds like it's not going to come back. They, they relapsed. You know, we thought they were doing well. Instead of, they had a setback and we're here. They're here. I'm so glad they engaged. Let's figure out where to get them to a better place. 
Um, so a lot of the things I'll talk about as kind of specific ways to engage come from the background on syringe service programs. So syringe service programs see syringe access as the engagement point. A first step that people who inject drugs take to reduce their risk is to access sterile syringes. They don't want hep C, they don't want infections, they want to protect themselves, and syringe access is that point. So although there's other ways of accessing sterile syringes, syringe service programs see syringe access as an engagement point to offer a variety of services around that. Crisis intervention, wound care, hep C, HIV testing, and all of these things are steps in a process of reducing their harm. Um, and so putting, putting it to where they initially engage to reduce harm and offering other opportunities for them to engage. There's clear evidence for syringe service programs. Um, the, the, the biggest one is that um, people who engage with a syringe service program reduce drug use. And they're five times more likely to engage in treatment and three times more likely to be successful in, in long-term recovery. So there's something about that engagement uh, with support and in protecting their health and safety that makes a huge difference. We also know that it reduces needle stick injuries in the community. Most commonly stuck, um, stuck people in the community are police officers, usually with pat-down searches, et cetera. Um, and so we know that they reduce, um, they reduce needle sticks by two-thirds. And very likely, the syringe service programs are the most effective way of reducing overdose deaths. So studies where syringe service programs have been well integrated into communities show decreases of about 50%. And one of the programs we run that um, has a site in Rochester, where we see Rochester, New Hampshire, where we see a high volume of people, we think we've seen that reduction since we started. And it's not only us providing naloxone, but it's also um, the Recovery Community Center, who's super engaged and supportive as well. Um, but we're looking at the data to kind of demonstrate that. The biggest pushbacks are, you know, that people think that they give permission to use drugs, um, but we, we know that they don't increase drug use. I would say to any of you, if, you know, if, you, if I tell you now that there's a needle exchange in Claremont that you can go access, are any of you now thinking, you know what, I think I will try heroin. I think that seems like a, it's not a thing that happens. People don't know that there's a needle exchange and think that they're going to, you know, be, now consider using. Um, and so, um, if anything, we know that they decrease their use when they engage. So the specific harms of injecting are infectious disease like HIV, Hep C, but the biggest things are syringe reuse and syringe access. So we see a clean, you know, bevel of a needle. We see after one use, there's even nicks. Um, the tip is bent. In some of our studies, people in New Hampshire described it, reusing syringes up to 50 times. So what they're doing in order to physically be able to do that is that they're, um, they're um, filing down the needle bevel in order to be able to get to a point. And within that, then, you have particles that are, um, you have particles that become lodged in their veins, and often with the filing, then the um, needle itself can um, get lost in the veins. It can come off in the veins. So then we have an emboli in the body that can move around. Um, and so these are the specific harms with injecting that I think we can address. 
Um, another, uh, I, another study, and I just kind of threw it in here, especially because we're in this target area. So the DISCERN study, you can read what that acronym means there. Um, but that's been looking at drug injection, um, people who inject drugs across the red areas, so across the I-91 corridor of New Hampshire and Vermont. Um, it's recruited 565 people, um, which is huge for those rural areas. Um, and what we've seen is the difference between New Hampshire, Vermont, and Massachusetts um, is pretty stark. So we see higher rates of hepatitis C in New Hampshire, about 70%. Interestingly, we think that what makes a rural area prime for an HIV outbreak is a um, hep C positive of about 60%. So we're beyond that. Why does that happen? Because hep C status is a marker for um, in needle sharing behavior. And so it hasn't happened, but one new case in a community that shares needles will spread like wildfire. And it's really a shock that we haven't seen more cases. Um, more than half of the sample had shared their injecting equipment in the last 30 days. Um, in the, probably in the lifetime, um, more than that, definitely. The access to clean syringes was almost half that of the other places. So only 42% of the New Hampshire sample um, reported easy access to clean syringes, where, as opposed to 92% in mass, although that may be a little biased because we were there is a large syringe service in the town that we were um, recruiting. So in thinking about harms and troubleshooting, there's no one, um, one kind of point to, to connect on. It's all about engaging. It's all about showing that you care um, and that you want to make a difference. So um, depending on what their goal is, you can target the drug set or setting. Those are the things we mainly talk about. Um, so the drug itself, what it, what it does, how potent it is, and what it's cut with. So we know fentanyl is a big thing in the state of New Hampshire. In our programs, we don't recommend that, we, we recommend everyone assume that there is fentanyl in everything because I think there is. Um, in the state of New Hampshire, as far as I am aware, in 2019, there has not been a single death from heroin. They're all fentanyl. So I don't even think there is pure heroin available or if it is, um, people aren't dying from it. So how it's used. So one of the strategies, so we have seen a big increase in meth use. We will continue to see a bigger increase in methamphetamine use. Um, and that doesn't have Suboxone. That doesn't have medication-assisted treatment in the same way. Um, but there's some things that we can adjust or counsel people. So if people are interested in cutting back their meth use, then we can talk to them about changing the route. So usually with um, injecting or smoking meth, there's a higher peak. Often people are injecting eight times a day when they're using meth because they get that high peak and then it, um, it comes down, they, take, they use another dose, and that can be eight to ten times a day. So if they're looking to cut back or decrease their use, they can snort it or swallow it, and that doesn't have a sharp peak. That's like a more, you know, closer absorption. So these are all just... Uh, I, and I could have a million of them, but just tips and tricks on how to counsel people on where they're going, what they're trying, what they've tried before. Um, the set, so a person's unique physiology, their physical health, the biggest thing I don't think we do a good job targeting is when they leave the hospital setting, when they leave prisons, that is 
prime time for overdose deaths. So if we're going to spend $500,000, or I don't even know what a valve replacement costs, but it's more than that, I'm sure, um, in order to address their endocarditis, and then we say, okay, good, don't use drugs, see you later. We don't talk about overdose prevention, keeping them safe, reducing the chance of reoccurrence, and we've done them a disservice. And it's no surprise that they're going to continue to share needles if they go back to using or not have those treatment resources. The setting is also really important, the stressors in a person's life, with whom and where a person uses. So one of the, the two of the times that we know we see increases in overdose deaths are big drug rates. So, you know, Granite Shield comes down, they arrest all these dealers, they put their paper, their picture in the paper. We're all like, oh great, we're safer. But really for people who use drugs, that's a huge risk time. Now the drug supply has changed, they don't know how potent things are, they're using different types of drugs because that mechanism came off. So just because we arrested those drug dealers doesn't mean that they're not still physically dependent or still using drugs. Um, and the other time too is for homeless, um, populations who are in campsites when we have war on homelessness and we move all the campsites and we bulldoze them and we kick everyone out. In those communities, in, the, in those tent sites, they have developed their own harm reduction strategies. They camp with people who look out for them and now they're displaced and they're out there. That's another prime time. They're rushing so they don't have a private spot where they're using drugs. They're behind Cumberland Farms trying to rush to inject. They overdose. They die. They're alone. Um, oh, unfortunately, the visual on this didn't um, come through. And I have a Mac, but it sometimes doesn't translate um, to other computers. Um, but this is just looking at the overdose deaths in New Hampshire. It's a, on a resource available on our website. Um, and also, that syringe picture is on the same resource. And I point that out because if you're trying to do this education or trying to talk to people about stuff, that picture is really what changes hearts and minds on this stuff, I think. Um, so we know that there's been a small decrease in opioid-related deaths uh, or drug-related deaths in the state, but it's a decrease of about 15. We're still at 471 for 2018. In comparison, there were 114 motor vehicle deaths in the state. So we have about three times um, the number of deaths, but yet we have all this infrastructure. We have new roads, we have speed limits, we have speeding enforcement, we have all of these things, but we don't have the appropriate supportive services to connect people who want to get into recovery to recovery services. Um, the, we should have gone through this before, sorry. We were talking about two weeks now, but... Um, so the things that we look to engage people on include um, overdose prevention, accessing supplies, safe needle disposal, and safer use. Um, so all of these are engagement tools. This is not a script, but this would be something that could be modified into a care plan of education for, for people who come into the ER or inpatient unit to inject. What are we doing to talk to them about reducing their harm? So some of the tips on preventing injury to veins and infections, wash hands, use hand sanitizer. Um, very often when people start using injecting drugs or transition to injecting drugs, they're like, I don't need a tourniquet, but tourniquets are actually recommended. They improve vein access. Um, and there's, there's less damage to the vein 
um, with that. Um, talking about recognizing valves and veins. So um, for any of you who do IVs or phlebotomy, um, you know, valves are firmer, wider areas. To people who are new with injecting drugs, they are, they look like great places to hit, great veins to hit. And so they often inject into valves, and that's when people say my veins are shot. Often it's the damage to the valve that's done over time because they think it's a good spot. Um, talking about staying safe, so biggest thing, number one, is don't use alone, don't use alone, don't use alone. Um, talking about safety plans when people are in recovery or when people are leaving treatment. So here they have been doing great, they've been inpatient, they've been getting Suboxone, they're going to go back to the community, but talking about that risk because often they're back at mom and dad's house, they are having a struggle and whatever they're struggling with, they start to go back to using and they're using alone in the bedroom. So talking to people about that phenomenon, that, that you know, it is possible that you will want to go back to injecting, even though you do really well now. Um, but the most important thing is to reach out when that happens. If you are going to do that, who can be a trusted person to be there so that you are safe and that we don't lose you? Um, we talk about taking a, a, um, avoid taking all the drug at one time and taking a test shot. Um, but that only works if there's syringe access. So if someone has that jagged U6 times needle that they're trying to access their vein, they're going to use more of the drug that, because they don't know if that needle is going to hang in there for another injection. Um, so syringe access is a big part of overdose prevention. We, in syringe services, provide safer supplies that um, cover all of the things. So talking to people about how they can provide clean supplies. Um, there's other supplies that we provide. So cookers um, are the little tea light looking thing. Often that's where people mix drugs. In our area, they don't typically cook drugs, but some people can. Um, cooking drugs decreases the risk of infection. They often draw up um, from that cooker through a filter of some sort. So we provide cottons that are, are um, clean um, to use. Otherwise, people use cigarette filters. Cigarette filters have a ludicrous number of chemicals in them. So they are then pulling the drug through formaldehyde and all sorts of other junk and then addressing, uh, injecting the junky drug with the extra junk um, and really doing damage to their body and their veins. So in New Hampshire, pharmacies can provide access to sterile syringes. They are in general not. Um, so one thing to, which is something I hope to address in the next couple of years, um, but this is from the Board of Pharmacy News in July of 2019 where they reiterated for pharmacists um, that anyone over the age of 18 can purchase any quantity of syringes. So you could go in and say, I want 500 syringes, um, and they are legally able to provide that. Um, there used to be a restriction of no more than 10, and people would only provide a 10-pack. So for most pharmacies that do, they are um, they're only providing the 10-pack. Um, and then pharmacies are deciding not to sell syringes any longer. Um, we have heard that the price of a used syringe that someone has cleaned has been $5 a piece in some places in New Hampshire. So just protecting their safety or just uh, being able to do that becomes really important. So I recommend everyone advocate. So if you are a pharmacy consumer um, and you think this is important, 
telling pharmacies, like, hey, you know, do you sell syringes? Because I really think you should, and that's really important to me as a customer. Often what happens because syringe access is bad, because they only provide 10 syringes at a time, they stop selling syringes when they have an overdose in their parking lot or their bathroom. So why does that happen? Because syringe access is so poor, people who inject drugs have that syringe, they're going to inject, it breaks off in their vein, that they can't access with the crappy tip of their needle, and so then suddenly they're in a rush. Then they're in active withdrawal, they're going to the pharmacy with their three bucks for their 10 pack, and as soon as they get that, they get back to the car and they need to inject because they're in active withdrawal. We talk about overdose prevention. Oh, this visual works. So you can see the overdose deaths. So 471 in New Hampshire last year. Um, we, um, the Surgeon General has said everyone should be carrying, everyone in the U.S. should be carrying naloxone. Um, I don't know that everyone really needs naloxone, but if you have naloxone, it's part of acknowledging I'm ready to respond, I'm engaged in solving this epidemic, and I care about the community I'm in. Um, we talk about safer disposal um, and how to, hopefully they have a connection with the syringe service program, they bring them back. Otherwise, there's these handouts from the CDC, and this is totally legal in New Hampshire. We probably talk, talk to diabetics about it, but use a bleach or detergent bottle, put the, all the syringes in there, tape it up, write do not recycle, put it out in the regular trash. So I've already mentioned this, but we have, um, so uh, with fentanyl, we assume in New Hampshire, everything has fentanyl in it. Um, there are test strips that people can check their drugs. Um, it, it's important to note, and I was confused at first as a nurse, this is the opposite of pregnancy tests. So um, one line is positive, two lines are negative. Um, and so with this, it's, it's great if they want to check their drugs uh, to make sure. We now recommend people check other drugs. So cocaine and meth is often laced with fentanyl as well. Fentanyl is in every drug, really, in the state. Um, we talk about health promotion recommendations, um, HIV, hep C testing, et cetera. There's currently um, five New Hampshire syringe service programs. Um, Hand Up in the Seacoast, Grow and Keen, Sauna in Nashua. We very recently served Queen City Exchange in Manchester. Um, and an HIV HCV Resource Center, which is here and operates a program at um, Claremont. And does anyone know the Vermont? Good Neighbor Health Clinic. Good Neighbor, which is in White River? Junction. In White River. So that would be the closest. Springfield, Vermont. Vermont. So they have another site. They went. Springfield, Vermont. In Springfield as well. Um, oops. Um, we have this client handout, which has the program's um, safe tips. So this is sort of the patient-facing material. Um, on using safe supplies, not using alone, etc. Um, and it then has all the contact information for all of the programs in New Hampshire. That's also on our website. I don't know if I just keep going back or something. Not. Oh, look, these visuals. And Mac to PC. This doesn't work. Um, so this is so this resource um, we also have on our website, Compassionate Care for Opiate Use Disorder. It talks about the evidence for... Um, for medication-assisted treatment options. Often what I hear is pushback around that is what about our liability for um, prescribing treatment options, and it sort of addresses that through a new report that came out in February, which says instead of worrying about, in my interpretation, instead of worrying about our liability for providing MAT, we know that it's an evidence-based intervention that reduces overdose deaths, and we should be worried about our liability for not providing MAT. 
So if someone doesn't leave on Suboxone when they've been on it inpatient, then that's a huge liability for the hospital. So in this resource, we compare the different options. There's currently three FDA-approved options, and there may be one more coming. And really where we try to engage people is around symptom management. So in the same harm reduction philosophy, okay, so you're not into prescribing Suboxone right now, but what can you do to compassionately engage with people who are experiencing withdrawal? So what happens when you're in withdrawal? Let's talk about what symptoms you have. Oh, it's the nausea that really leads you back to use. Like, let's talk about some ways to mitigate that. Basic care stuff, ginger tea, Zofran, medications, things that we can provide to, to help engage them in care. And so we have a list of those medications with really weird visuals, but I like them. So. The diarrhea one's probably the best. <laughs> or vomiting, between them. Um, so this is a change I was super psyched to hear is kind of coming your way, um, if not already here. Um, but in Canada, some, one of the harm reduction meccas of the world, um, you know, we know that people who inject drugs come into the hospital, they feel like they're in prison, they have sitters, security searches them, they don't complete their six-week course of antibiotics. So um, with this, they have successfully tested and provide outpatient IV therapy to people who use drugs, people who inject drugs, um, in order to engage them more in treatment. So if we're looking at cost savings, if we're looking at treatment outcomes, if we're looking at compassion, often people who have been in jail or prison before don't want to be in a hospital. It feels very similar. Um, and there's no reason why they can't be treated outpatient with appropriate support. And so we look at this, or I look at this, similar to our chaotic to abstinent um, use as how we can engage healthcare providers in moving from disbelief and suspicion to integrating harm reduction and then following kind of golden rule, basic nursing practice, public health model of care, and integrating that. One of the things we have going on right now and we'll be continuing some work is a harm reduction education and technical assistance project. In that project, we're able to provide um, a few one-on-one um, -on -one, uh, one -on -one, um, visits with providers to talk about these harm reduction strategies and also CEU-approved trainings at practice sites. So what we want to do in those trainings is engage with most, if, most of the practitioners in that site, so like a lunch meeting, in order to talk about this and discuss. Um, I assume, based on your attendance here, that this is probably a topic you're already interested in. We want to reach the people that are not self-selecting to come to the opioid conference, to the grand rounds on this. We want to talk to a practice setting. And that is what I have. The, the last thing, this is our website, it's mhhrc.org. Um, under resources, you can find all of the things that I alluded to today. I forgot my big folder of all those resources for you. So unfortunately, you'll have to print them yourself. But I think we have just a little time. I'm sorry I talked for so long for questions, comments. We have a couple minutes. We are recording and live web streaming. So I'm going to run around with a mic if you have any questions. Um, I, you were mentioning people having naloxone in the community. How do people actually get that? Like I've heard people, they carry it on them. But if they don't have an allergy or a reason to have Narcan, like how do you get that? For um, naloxone, so in right now the state distribution is through the doorways, so you can go to the doorway, which where is the location? So 
couple here. of things. It's oh. over at the Addiction Treatment Center um, at Rivermail. But so Courtney Warchek's here. She's a recovery coach in the emergency department, um, and she you can stand the microphone to her. Um, she probably could tell you where sort of more centrally located those resources are. Um, so for Claremont, the recovery center there, they give out naloxone for free. The 211 doorways also gives it out for free, and myself in the emergency room can give it to anyone. They don't have to check into the ED. They can just come and say they need to see the recovery coach, and I can train them on the Narcan and give it to them right then. I have a loud mouth. So I have a question regarding that because I work in palliative care with people with substance use or opioid use, and what I'm getting hit back is that they're having like $30, 60 $90 co-pays for the naloxone. No co-pay for all the opioids I prescribe, but the co-pay. So if they, if I'm prescribing it to, for overdose prevention and they can't afford it, could they come to come there to get it from you? Of course they can, yes. Okay, thank you, because that's what was floored me, was seeing these crazy co-pays for it, and yet they're getting no co-pays for all the opioids I prescribe. There's, there's also a concern that has been raised around um, life insurance coverage, where life insurance has been, in certain few cases, reviewing claims that include a prescription, or reviewing history and seeing a prescription for naloxone and denying coverage or increasing premiums to people's coverage. So if someone got filled it through a prescription, or we know that's best practice if anyone's being prescribed an opiate, um, it may actually have negative consequences. So there's federal legislation that's been introduced or that um, has been worked on in order to address that, so to make that not anything that can be considered um, in life insurance. But it is a potential risk, too. I know they're somewhat controversial, but I'm wondering what your opinion is on safe injection sites or spot sites. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of news right now around um, Philadelphia, which Prevention Point is working on trying to have the first uh, legal um, safe injection facility. So in that, um, uh, one of the largest, most successful ones is Insight in Vancouver. Um, I'm super supportive of those. Um, I think that that's an, another step. There's a lot of barriers to getting there. They only function well, or um, my knowledge is, in areas where drug users already are. Often what people want is like, okay, well, let's go put that on this industrial park in this corner that's been abandoned, and we can, you know, but that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily work. But um, I think that if our goal is to provide supportive care and reduce overdose deaths, then it's absolutely a necessary intervention we pursue. So where does New Hampshire rank nationally in like opioid um, addiction rates and deaths like currently, do you know? So I, I believe that New Hampshire is currently fourth. There was sort of some like lag on the data we were third, second and then third and back and forth. But unfortunately, it does that does not mean that our overdose death rate has decreased. It just means that other states increase beyond us. So in the time we still have like a 41, you know, per 100,000 death rate. Um, and, the high, and Ohio sort of has 
become more of an issue and has risen past us. We haven't really decreased. But it's bad. And it's very, it's very bad compared to all of our neighboring states. So um, Vermont is very low. Massachusetts is relatively lower, kind of in the middle. Um, and Maine is much lower than we are as well. And it's the same drugs in those places. Why is New Hampshire so high? Because we don't have services. Because <laughs> we don't have services. We don't have, or until very recently, we don't have syringe services. Um, and the syringe services that we do have are funded on like nickels and dimes I find in couches all over the state, pretty much. Um, there's no state support for syringe services. Um, and so there's no kind of messaging with that around we want to keep people safe. The messaging we see publicly and we see in public battles like between the governor and the mayor of Manchester is get drug users out of our community um, instead of harm reduction, which is embracing them and trying to meet them as members of our community. There's my, there's my editorial version of, oh wait, this is being recorded. <laughs> I would just add by contrast, so in Vermont, so um, HIV, HCV Resource Center is a New Hampshire organization. They have been operating a syringe exchange in Vermont for more than a decade across the river at Good Neighbor Health Center because they were not allowed to have one in New Hampshire. And um, as Kelly pointed out, there's five in New Hampshire now. Claremont was just recently opened up in the last six months or so. So there's just another example of the difference between the two states there. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap this up for now, but maybe Carrie can stay for a few minutes if anyone has any other questions they'd like to talk to her. Um, thank you for coming. Just if anyone is interested in um, additional trainings or practice site, um, sort of in-service type things, uh, please let me know if we have that uh, support for that at least through November. The code today, again,